Welcome to A Sensory Emotional Lens. I am Michelle Parkins. Hello and welcome back to A Sensory Emotional Lens. Last week we started a new series, a new conversation about the overlap between sensory processing differences and common diagnoses for children. Um, Also the contribution of different sensory processing capacities on different diagnoses for children. Today we're going to talk about attention and more specifically ADHD and the sensory processing contributions to that diagnosis. So welcome to a sensory emotional lens on attention and ADHD. According to the CDC, ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders of childhood. It's usually first diagnosed in childhood and then often lasts into adulthood. So just a quick recap of um, what we discussed last week as far as why we would want to do and have a conversation about this overlap or these contributions. So we discussed that there are many diagnoses that have overlap with sensory processing differences, and sometimes we even find that there could be a misdiagnosis where sensory processing differences or sensory processing disorder were missed and not considered, and the behavioral pattern that was being observed was diagnosed as something else. So we also mentioned that each professional looks at the same behavior with a different lens and therefore interprets it differently. So we can look at the same behavioral pattern and each person that has a different level of training in a different area could describe that behavior's foundation a different way. So it's just important that if a diagnosis or recommendations that accompany a diagnosis do not feel right or don't feel like they are a good fit or match for your child or your family, it's really important to keep looking and asking questions. So you may be exploring a different diagnosis if that diagnosis didn't feel like a good fit, or it could be the right diagnosis, but the recommendations were a little bit too limited and potentially not um, considering all the options that are, are available. So we know that if we use sensory motor recommendations for many different diagnoses that it helps support the challenges that are at hand. Um, And this is either because there's an overlap between sensory processing differences and that diagnosis, or it could be that sensory processing differences is actually the thing that is causing the challenge and the behavioral pattern that you're seeing. So either way, we would like to introduce the idea of coming at the different challenges that you're looking at, different diagnoses that you might receive for your child through the sensory emotional lens. So as I mentioned, we're going to focus on ADHD today. Um, This is near and dear to my lived experience, um, having two children both with this diagnosis um, and also working with several children in my practice with this diagnosis or what's called at risk for ADHD, right? So there's a, a component of or an opportunity to be told that your child is at risk for it. Um, so just to keep an eye on different things that might be occurring and try different things to engage in some early intervention for it. So first, I'd like us to stop and think about how do we know someone is paying attention? So this is just something that you look for in everyday life when you're in interactions with people that you're around, and how do you know that they're paying attention? So kind of take a second to picture that. Maybe think about the observable behaviors, right, that you would be looking for. So a lot of times these diagnoses are accompanying 
behavioral patterns. So things that happen together and often. So if we're thinking about paying attention, what are the things that we see happening together and often when somebody's paying attention to us? So some of the things that came to mind for me was to have their body oriented towards me, uh, potentially looking at me, but oftentimes that's not the case in real life. We don't make eye contact all the time, um, but we do have our body oriented towards the person who's communicating with us. I thought about affect, so facial expressions and gestures that are complementary to the interaction or the conversation. That the response was in a timely manner, so there was a rhythmic back and forth flow to the interaction. There was kind of this expected give and take of the interaction back and forth. That they were able to sustain engagement with me for as long as I was interested in engaging, right? That the interaction took place for me and them at the same amount of time. And then lastly, maybe following directions could be a way to describe it. So if we're talking about doing something or engaging in something that that person activates their body and moves towards doing the thing that we're talking about at a time that matched where I was maybe going towards that same activity. So um, I like to kind of think about it more as like a shared attention where we're sharing space and time around a specific topic and our bodies are verbally and non-verbally engaged with each other. Uh, whether that's just the way our body's positioned or how our body's moving together. So now let's do the same thing. Think about somebody who often doesn't pay attention to you um, or picture what it could look like when someone is not paying attention. So what are the observable behaviors that you see in that situation? So some of the things that I came up with was that that person is maybe looking in another direction or looking past me where their visual gaze seems to not be sharing attention around the same thing that I'm talking about or the same thing that I'm doing. This could look like daydreaming, right? Kind of looking off into space. Low affect, so their facial expressions and gestures don't actually look like they're engaged with the topic that I am providing. So their their eyes may be averted, their body could be slumped over, Uh, They could be not kind of hanging their hands to their sides or not really in this upright position that is in my direction, engaging with the facial expressions and gestures that I am. They could be moving, touching, kind of engaging in something totally different than, than what I'm doing. And really, they could be not engaging in what I'm talking about, right? So not, you could say, following directions, not following or doing what is being asked of them, or not following or doing what we're supposed to be doing together. So this represents our day-to-day experience of knowing if our child is paying attention. So if we see any challenges in this, so either we don't see the first things that represent paying attention, or we do see a lot of things that represent not paying attention, then we may be wondering about a potential ADHD diagnosis or somebody else might be observing these behaviors in your child and saying, you should get them looked at for ADHD. I think this is a diagnosis that is very often talked about by professionals as well as individuals just in day-to-day life. I mean, it's very common for us to hear people say these days like, oh, that's my ADHD or my ADHD is acting up or, oh, yep, I'm just like ADHD, right? It's becoming a very common phrase, which I think has pros and cons to it because I think it normalizes the fact that attention challenges are common for everyone. But I also think that we have to be careful if we're saying that there's a certain diagnosis 
of ADHD, then it does come with pretty heavy recommendations that may or may not align with what families might be wanting to do for their child. So let's take a look at that. Let's look at the ADHD diagnosis criteria. So this comes from what's called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Manual. Um, so these are the actual guidelines that are being read that would qualify a person for an ADHD diagnosis. So the main description is a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity and impulsivity that interferes with functioning or development and negatively impacts directly on social, academic, and occupational activities. So first I'd like to say as an OT, I love that occupational activities is in there. So um, I don't know, some people don't even think to stop and think about what OT means, but occupational therapy means therapy that helps individuals do what their occupations are, whatever that occupation might be for that life stage that they're currently in. So I love that occupational activities are in this diagnostic criteria because it points to the fact that OT can help. So there's a couple different types of ADHD. Um, there is predominantly inattentive, predominantly hyperactive and impulsive, or a combined presentation. Today, we're going to focus on the inattention criteria. There's a lot of criteria. There's a, a lot of different ways of presenting for ADHD and for inattention challenges. So I do want to focus today primarily on this inattention piece. So to qualify as having inattentive ADHD, the criteria is you have to have six or more of the following behavior patterns, as I'm going to read next, that have occurred for at least six months' time. So it's, they're consistently showing up for at least six months. So we'll go back to these. So I'm going to read them now, but they're, I'm going to also use them as a big part of our discussion today. So I'll try to go slowly so you can think about them. So fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes. Work is inaccurate. Difficulty sustaining attention and tasks. Doesn't seem to listen when spoken to directly. Their mind seems elsewhere, even in the absence of obvious distractions. Does not follow through on instructions and fails to finish tasks. Starts tasks but quickly loses focus and is sidetracked. Difficulty organizing tasks and activities. So difficulty managing sequential tasks, difficulty keeping materials organized, and poor time management. Avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage in activities that require sustained mental effort. Loses things necessary for tasks or activities. Is easily distracted by extraneous stimuli and forgetful during daily activities. So that is a list of the criteria from the diagnostic manual for inattentive ADHD. So you may have listened to that list and you may have said, yes, I could see some of this in my child. Um, yes, I can see some of this in myself, right? I think that it, just with any sort of challenge, we have to think about the impact on function, right? So you could have some of those pieces, but it may not impact your function every single day, right? This could be because you've already figured out how to, to, to deal with it, or it could be something that just occurs in day-to-day -day life for you at times, maybe when you're tired or hungry or extra stressed out, but it really needs to be a persistent occurrence, again, over that six months time. 
So I apologize for reading that, but certainly felt like it was relevant to just have a time and space to hold that for you to have a chance to go back and re-listen to those read directly from the diagnostic manual. So just as always, I want to now jump into our sensory emotional personality styles are, that represent different ways of processing sensation and moving the body. So uh, if you're just joining us, these sensory emotional personality styles are representative of the different ways that our kids take in information from the environment, take in information from their body, and then organize their response to a task or interaction. And we have five predictable patterns that represent five different ways of doing that. So I would like to go through these and and reference back to this list of inattentive criteria to explain why the sensory, the way of processing sensation could be causing those different observable behaviors that are being labeled as inattention. So again, this could be that both of these things are happening simultaneously right, that there is an ADHD component to your child's profile and this way of processing sensation, or potentially the behaviors that are being demonstrated because of the way they're processing sensation could be being labeled as inattentive ADHD. Um, And I'll kind of talk at the end about how we differentiate the two things from one another. So our anxious yet deeply feeling kids, these are our kids that process sensation too much, too intensely for too long. So they're taking in uh, hypersensitively to the sensation coming in. Um, So they could be anxious about that information coming to their body. um, And they also very deeply feel the information coming to them from the environment and from their body. And this can happen in one or several sensory systems. So for our kids that are anxious at deeply feeling or experiencing sensory over-responsivity, attention's primary job for them is to make sure that they're safe. So they do not feel safe with information coming from the environment into their body from just general sensations that happen every day around us. So their time and effort is going to be placed on or their attention is going to be spent on assessing and evaluating everything that's happening in the environment to decide if they're going to be safe or not safe. And sometimes this is subcortical, right? Not cognitive, subconscious, where they're saying their body's feeling this and their body's turning their attention to the environment instead of the interaction or task at hand. And sometimes our kids say, I'm really worried about who's going to make a sound. or I'm really worried about who's going to come up and touch me. I'm really worried about, you know, that kid bumping me, that kind of thing. So it could be at a cognitive level, but usually it's not. Usually it's more um, a observable behavior that we see, which looks like our kids kind of looking past us, right? So that was one of the things that I described as an example in day-to-day life of inattention would be somebody that I'm interacting with that's tending to look past me, right? Not really being with me, being in front of me, but their attention is turned outward. So in this situation, we'll go back to some of those criteria and, and explain that through this sensory emotional lens of our sensory over-responsive kids. So failing to give close attention to details. 
So when I picture kids that are in a busy environment that experience sensory over-responsivity, I picture a child who's kind of halfway in the interaction and halfway in the environment and the sensations happening around them. So they're participating because remember that deeply feeling side of this SEP, that yet side, it means they're highly attuned to their expectations in their environment, right? So they're highly attuned to what's expected for them to, to be doing. So they'll be engaging in the interaction or the activity because of that high attunement to the expectations of the other people that they're with, but their body's in this pull, right? I have to make sure I'm safe, but I have to do this activity. I have to make sure I'm safe, but I have to do this activity. So they can miss details because their attention isn't totally in one place or the other, right? There's got split attention for safety and activity, safety and activity. The next thing that I thought about when I read don't, doesn't seem to listen when spoken to or distracted by extraneous stimuli, so their mind is elsewhere, right, which we just described why it would be elsewhere, um, but more importantly, this idea that there's not obvious distractions. So I think it's important for us to remember that anticipated experiences still alert their bodies as dangerous. So uh, when they're in a busy environment, when there's a potential for a sensation that is not predictable and not expected, they're going to be tuned in towards that. So we may say, I know my child is over-responsive to sound, but there's no sounds in this environment. So how could they possibly be not paying attention to me and paying attention to the sound if there is no sound? A lot of times, no sound for kids who say are sensory over-responsive to sound is actually scarier than some sound because when there's no sound and a sound enters the environment, that's even more alerting to the body. So it could be that there's no obvious things that they should be paying attention to, but there's perceived things that they could that they're paying attention to or looking for, right? So we, we talk about this hypervigilance with this SEP. There's hypervigilant to what could be happening around them. The last one that really stuck out to me was this idea of sustaining attention, so difficulty sustaining attention or not following through to finish tasks. So we do know that our kids that are sensory over-responsive will avoid tasks that are perceived as aversive, right? So they may start to engage in activity and then get to a point where they're experiencing something aversive and stop because that is where they experienced the, the sensation that was uncomfortable for them. Or, and this is, I think, the more common one, because of that deeply feeling attunement to what's expected of them, they're engaging in the task because they know they have to or they're expected to. And so they're dealing with the discomfort and the over-responsivity uh, until they can't do it anymore, right? So they're engaged in the activity and then their coping cup is completely full and they have to check out of that activity because they can't take it anymore, um, so then we see them not follow through, so to speak, with a task or not being able to sustain attention, so to speak, but really that what they're doing is not being able to cope anymore and needing to leave that specific situation. Our next SEP is the unaware yet deep thinking sensory emotional personality style. This is representative of our kids who are sensory under-responsive, so sensory under-responsivity or, or hyposensitive or less sensitive to both information that's coming in from the environment and information that is coming in from their bodies. Um, so that sounds a lot like not paying attention, right? Where they're not taking in, not registering input from around them. 
could be a simultaneous definition, right, of inattention. So in from a body-based perspective, though, what's happening is they're not able to pay attention because the experience is not showing up on their radar, right? So I often kind of picture this radar screen, kind of like the beep, 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 radar little guy and not it just doesn't even get picked up there's no blip on their screen of that experience that is or could occur because their body's not perceiving and registering that that is something that's something that they should attend to or pick up on so they're not either picking up the information that's coming in from the environment or they are they hear what you're saying they see the opportunity they know what what is expected of them but they're body can't respond fast enough, right? So if there's an under-responsivity in the body-based systems, then it's this disconnect between hearing what we should be doing and activating our body to do it. Um, so it looks like we we can't connect and, and get up and do the thing, right? So that could very much look like not following directions. So the other thing that comes to mind here in our day-to-day is our kids with sensory under-responsivity generally have lower lower affect, so their facial expressions and their gestures tend to be more flat um, and not as apparent, right? So, you know, that was one of my indicators of day-to-day life, not paying attention, was if somebody's affect that I was talking to didn't match mine or complement mine. So if we look back at that list of criteria for inattentive ADHD, one of the first ones I want to talk about is doesn't seem to listen when spoken to directly. So mind seems elsewhere, even in the absence of obvious distractions. So we just kind of referenced this one in our last SCP, but this looks totally different in our kids with who are unaware yet deep thinkers. Um, first of all, I'd say daydreaming is one of the most common caregiver reports for our kids that are under-responsive, like being in their own world or daydreaming is a top report by caregivers for our kids with under-responsivity. So not being inattentive, actually, daydreaming is a complete overlap with kids who have sensory under-responsivity. So just like I mentioned, they're not picking up the information that they could be attending to. The other side of this is our yets, right? So our yets here is our deep thinkers. So our deep thinkers, uh, the reason why we have that part of the sensory emotional personality is the idea that it's more interesting in their head than it is in their body, right? So the thoughts that they're having, the stories that they're telling, the things that they're thinking about, the concepts and ideas that they have are bigger and more exciting than the information that's coming from the environment or from their body because they're under responding to that, right? So it's I it's easier and more fun for me to live in these vibrant thoughts that I have because I don't have vibrant information coming to my body. So we see that like quote unquote daydreaming, but really they're actually in deep thought about something else. So we see a tendency to be a thinker as opposed to a mover because our body's not saying get up and do something Uh, our mind is saying, hey, this is pretty interesting though in here. The other side of this is that it takes time to respond. So the deep thinking we see where we're um, given directions. So we're, if you would say, based on the criteria, spoken to directly. And it could look like they're not not listening, uh, but they're actually thinking, right? So they're thinking about how do I do what you're asking me to do? How do I do that? So remembering their body is not giving them automatic feedback on how to do things. So they have to think about how to do things. Luckily, 
in our theory, we have a tendency to think a lot with this SEP. So we, that's a strength, right? So they use the strength of deep thinking to figure out how to do what they're being asked to do. Difficulty organizing tasks and activities is another big criteria for ADHD, uh, particularly as our kids get a little bit older and they're expected to do this more independently. So sometimes this is when we notice that there could be this inattention behavior or this ADHD criteria is in this difficulty organizing tasks and activities when that independence is put on the child for the first time. So we see um, difficulty keeping materials organized, difficulty kind of sequencing things. What do I do first, second, third? So with this consideration, I'd like to think about the systems that commonly experience sensory under-responsivity. And in our practice, primarily those are the proprioceptive and the vestibular systems. And these systems are foundations for understanding space and time in their creation in their development, right? The development and the, the way that these systems process information sets the stage for organization. So let's dive into that a little deeper for a second. So proprioception, information from our muscles, gives us a sense of our body map. It gives us a sense of where our body parts are in relation to our other body parts when at rest and when moving and doing activities. So you can think of that as it is the understanding of how our body parts fit together to make a whole and how do we organize our body parts in different positions to fit together to make a whole, right? So when you jump back to organization of materials, right, that is the foundation to this. If we don't know how to organize our own body to fit into the different positions it needs to get into to make the whole, right, to do the activity, then how do we externally know how to organize materials to fit and move in different positions, right? So that, that body-based understanding of how things fit together to make a whole directly relates to keeping materials organized. Our vestibular system is our basis for spatial organization. So our vestibular system processes our body's movement through space and our orientation of our body in space. It's what helps us understand and feel in, our, in ourselves things like on top, under, through, next to, right? So as our kids move their body in different positions and in different directions and in different ways, they start to feel and understand at a higher level what those things mean, right? When I put my body on top of something, I very clearly understand it. When I move under something, I understand that concept. And this has, you know, we get, we have a lot of beautiful conversations with our speech and language colleagues on, on those directions, right? That's a big part of work with our younger kids is understanding those things. And, and this body-based experience is required to make meaning of that. So when we're organizing our materials, when we're organizing our time, right, and we're understanding what we have to do first, second, and third, we, we pull from this vestibular basis of spatial organization that has been experienced in our body to then pull it out to a cognitive and um, more symbolic representation in day-to-day -day life. So... Being forgetful during daily activities or losing objects often, which are another two sets of criteria in this inattentive ADHD diagnosis, also relates here. So when we have a, a difficult time 
organizing our body in space, organizing our body parts in space in relation to things we need to do, we actually are a little bit slower to picture our maps, our spatial maps in our mind. So we do tend to put something down. And if we put something down and walk away, we would go, where did I put that? And we kind of quickly make a map of the space in our head. That map of the space comes from our sensory systems mapping that for us. So if our sensory systems are not quickly picking up information about space from the movement of our body, then we have a slower ability to develop that mental map. And then we could definitely start to lose things and forget where we put them. So these are our our body-based foundations to these higher level really executive function capacities that are represented in in an ADHD diagnosis as difficult. Lastly, within this SEP, I want to talk about this idea of avoiding, disliking, or being reluctant to engage in activities that require sustained mental effort. So I often talk to families about kind of that loss of focus experience that occurs for our kids who are unaware yet deep thinkers and experiencing sensations less than we would expect, that loss of focus happens faster than most people. Okay, so I'd like to give the example of if you're sitting at a conference, a day-long conference or a really long meeting, and you haven't had an opportunity to get up and move your body, it's that like slump in the chair you, you start to feel inattentive, right? You're daydreaming. You start, your mind wanders to something else. You might be leaning back. You might lose your visual focus, right? Your eyes might be looking somewhere else um, because you've just been sitting for so long and listening to the same information. And especially if it's a not exciting topic or not um, dynamic speaker, right? So picture yourself in that space, and you, that is under, you're under responsive to information from your body in that moment. And you start to become under responsive to information coming to you from the speaker, right? There's just not enough activation and interest that is being given to your body to alert it, to pay attention. We can sustain that if, if you're somebody who doesn't have sensory under responsivity, for a pretty decent amount of time, but our kids who do experience sensory unresponsivity start with a lower baseline of the ability to do that. So they're going to use up that input that they have in their body faster, and they're going to not be able to maintain that attention and that focus as long as somebody else because they have less information to start with that they're starting with to pay attention. Okay, so we just reviewed how the behavioral patterns or symptoms of differences in sensory registration and modulation, so sensory over-responsive experiences, sensory under-responsive experiences, can overlap with the observable behavior patterns or symptoms, if you will, of ADHD, or at the very least can be leading to inattention. So whether it's that our child's attention needs to be focused on whether or not they're feeling safe or if our child's underlying sensory systems are not picking up on what to pay attention to, or that the foundational sensory systems that provide information about how to organize ourselves in space and time to pay attention are not registering input needed to support attention and focus. So these are differences in just the first step of sensory processing that can lead to inattentive behavior. And this is just the first step. So it's 
really important to always remember that sensory registration and modulation, the how we take in sensory information is just one small piece of sensory motor capacities. So I hope this has provided a different lens to your understanding of ADHD and inattention, a sensory emotional lens. And we'll be back next time to discuss the impact of sensory discrimination differences, weakness in postural stability, and motor planning on inattention and ADHD. See you then. If you have any specific wonders about the way that your child's processing the world and the emotional expression of that sensory motor capacity, please visit our website, greatkidsplace.com. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please note that the content shared in this podcast is being provided for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The resources provided are not intended to be therapeutic interventions and individuals should consult with qualified healthcare professionals for personalized guidance regarding their occupational therapy and mental health needs. See you next time.